Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Stephen. Hi, I'm Philippa. And in this special series of the New Statesman podcast, we're looking at the politics of climate change and in the run-up to COP26, ask whether enough is being done to make a difference. So what are we talking about today? Today, Stephen, we're going to be looking at behavioural change. How important is this in getting to grips with the climate crisis and where should the responsibility sit for making the changes needed to cut emissions? How do we persuade millions of people to accept changes for the benefit of everyone? Today's episode is in partnership with Smart Energy GB, the GB campaign to help everyone understand the benefits of smart meters. We have two special guests today. Ruth Mori is the founder of DuneWorks, which is a private research organisation that is looking to how we can make the transition into a more sustainable world. And Rob Cheeserai is from Smart Energy GB, who have been researching what needs to be done to help people play their part in tackling the climate crisis. Welcome both of you and thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, Hello, thank you. Ruth, I wanted to come to you first and if you could perhaps explain a little bit about behavioural change, what are we actually talking about here? Uh, That's a good question, Philippa, because when we talk about behavioural change, uh, it sounds like it's an individual activity that people can choose to either do or not do. However, when um, you take a look at what we found in a lot of research and projects out there is that it's not an individual uh, thing, it's a social thing and it's a material thing, which implies that you can't simply ask or persuade people to change their behavior. The, the technologies and the instruments, appliances, etc. around them need to change as well and the people around them need to change as well. So it's, it's quite complex. Rob, the UK, in terms of behavioural change, and perhaps on a bigger scale, as Ruth has just described, whether it's in terms of smart meters, heat pump installation, seems to be a little bit behind the curve. Why do you think this is and how can behavioural change perhaps help? I think the UK has been very good at big infrastructure. We've got very good at building offshore wind turbines and and some of the other stuff we need to do to decarbonise power. The journey we're just starting on is small infrastructure. So smart meters is one we have been doing for a few years, but heat pumps, electric vehicle chargers, energy efficiency measures in the home, we are early days in that journey and we need to get going. And a lot of that actually comes from investment and funding. We need to see a, a, a massive increase in the ability to afford these measures, particularly for fuel poor households. And how does behavioural change come into that? Is that also part of the the blocker to this, not just funding? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got, I suppose, there's two kinds of behaviour change, at least in my head, as not an academic on this. There's often the kind of manual behaviour changes that we have spent a lot of time talking about, uh, particularly in in the UK, which is 
I mean, Britain, turn down the thermostat by a degree. Don't overfill your kettle. Some of the, turn off the lights when you're not in the room. And, and that stuff, I think we all know now and do. The big behavior change challenge we've got left is uptake behavior change, which is getting those products and services and in many cases, allowing them to work. Some of them are automated and stop the, you know, they don't require human every single day behavior change. And so what we really need is a lot of consumers agreeing to, to get things and then agreeing to work with them and not against them. That's really interesting because I suppose with my Poled hat on, I assume, yeah, actually as it happens coincidentally, we are getting our smart meter fitted tomorrow. Then a lot of the, the barrier in a UK context are people experiencing fuel poverty or people on prepay meters or, or, or low pay. Now, part of the focus of this campaign is persuading uh, people in that group to switch to smart meters. So how much of that is a behavior change issue and how much of that is just an income inequality issue? Yeah, so to get people to to do things, you need to remove barriers and you need to get the communications right and the behaviour change. So you first need to motivate them to do it. They need to have the means to be able to do it. So that's the first barrier to remove and cost is the biggest challenge. You need to get the trigger right. You need to talk to them at the right time with the right message. And then the rewards need to be right as well. It needs to stack up both practically in terms of do you actually, in this case, probably save money but also the, the feeling of reward as well and the kind of social element of that reward. And yeah, what we found with the research we've just published is that vulnerable consumers and what we thought would be harder, which is older consumers, are actually not less inclined to do these things. In many cases, they're more inclined to do them. And we shouldn't leave people that we think might be harder to reach behind because they are just as likely to do some of these things as people that you might not categorize as in a vulnerable circumstance. You need to then explain to them how it will work for them, remove logistical barriers, make sure that you're communicating well to them about what that means in their lives. But there's not an inherent problem about vulnerability or age or anything like that, that we need to treat as massively differently to anyone else. The biggest barrier in certainly in our experience with things like heat pumps uh, is, is upfront cost. How do you make the cost stack up for people? And Ruth, if we bring it back to this need for behavioural change a minute, which is obviously part of the part of the issue, you mentioned that we're not talking about individual changes here. We're talking more about a systemic change, even if we're talking about behavioural change. What's the role of government in that? The UK government has perhaps it had its nudge unit, but it's suffered a bit in terms of making these changes in people's homes, whether it be acceptation of heat pumps or smart meters, and it's not just cost. I think there are probably other things at play there as well. So what is the role of government? Well, what, what we found is that, to be honest, a lot of people, certainly those that are experiencing, for example, energy poverty issues, energy is not something that's top of mind. They have other issues that they are struggling with. And even for people that, that are, are better off in that sense, energy is a non-issue. Uh, so what is really important is actually to break down the silos between focusing on either energy or well-being or uh, actually provide a systemic change that improves the well-being of people in general where energy uh, and smart meters as a um, technology that can uh, enable this is just one of the means to actually achieve that goal but somehow for a lot of governments across Europe reducing energy consumption is the goal instead of the means uh, and I think there is a an issue that could be reversed and that might also solve the whole discourse on acceptance or uptake. We're talking about persuading people they need to accept, but that all has to do to some extent with not sufficiently appreciating and understanding and acknowledging that energy is a non-issue. 
So find out what's in it for me, what's really important. That might be a, a better community cohesion or a, a playground for kids in the neighborhood, safety issues, and see how things that will also contribute to uh, reduction of energy use, for example, uh, better insulation, which also reduces noise or cancels noise issues, better front doors instead of glass panes, panels having a wooden door, which insulates better, etc., etc. Energy retrofitting, energy reduction as a means to achieve other goals is key, I think. So is part of the solution then stopping to talk about climate change and actually starting to talk about other issues? And, and it, are we hearing too much about climate, the need for climate action at the moment? And should we, as you've just suggested, be, yeah, be discussing other issues to move forward? Well, climate change is something else. But yes, stop talking about energy transition. Absolutely. And start talking about how the energy transition will actually be a mechanism to achieve other things that do matter to people. Can I come in on that one? Because I think that's absolutely right. We've got, if you start talking about carbon to people and net zero, either they don't understand it. Carbon's a weird science word that we learned at school or, or, and it turns them off. Whereas if you talk about your house can be more comfortable, it can have a positive impact on health. If we do all of these things, we can create tens or hundreds of thousands of brilliant engineering jobs up and down the country installing some of these measures. That's good for our economy, but creates jobs for you or your children or, or in your community. You're more likely to convince people than talking about carbon and we found that there were for different audiences there are different things that work best and financial saving does work better than talking about carbon for some of these measures the idea of leaving a better world for people's children or grandchildren worked for some the idea of uh, being tech savvy and being seen to be tech savvy worked for different groups there are lots of different ways to 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 motivate people and often the least effective one is the word carbon and if I may add, when you asked the question, Philippa, you said, again, behavioral change is not an individual activity. It's a systemic uh, approach or should be a systemic approach. When we're talking about the people that Rob was talking about, so the elderly, etc., and those that are experiencing poverty issues, very often they are already doing a lot in terms of routine behavioral change. So they do turn down the thermostat some of them even up to 15 degrees instead of what we uh, think is best, the 17 plus degrees. But they are facing issues such as the fact that they have the worst appliances in homes and they don't have the money to actually change those appliances. So in terms of what the government could do in addition is also create incentives that actually help people change their appliances to the more energy um, efficient ones, for example, with loans. When you talk to some ministers and MPs, one of their concerns around this stuff is and they feel they worry that one MP said to me, oh, the concern is this becomes a Christmas tree issue. And they said when people start talking about just transition, it spooks people, it makes people feel skeptical. But in some ways, it feels like both of you are saying in different ways is actually the Christmas tree approach is exactly right. Because broadly, without saying, look, well, you have transition and you just don't get transition would you is that a fair characterization does it need to be just a just transition in order to get transition or or can you put the sort of social justice stuff to one side to get progress on this that's an ethical question as well of course we could have a very quick transition if there would be no just transition in that sense and would be a top-down transition the thing is that usually those that are already already able and willing would benefit the most and those not would bear most of the burdens. Poverty attracts, that's evidence-based all over the world. 
And we should not allow a systemic issue to fall down on a very specific group only. So in that sense, I think you would get a lot of other types of problems if you would not approach it in a just way. Yeah, I would add to that. I think you get two kinds of problems. So you've got firstly the political problem. You will lose political will for some of these things we need to do if some people are disproportionately uh, affected in a negative way. But also the scale of the challenge we've got, net zero, means that this is the changes have to flow through every home and business in the country. Those are the fuel poor homes. Those are homes in the private rented sector, which are incredibly hard to reach in the social rented sector as well. It has to be just because it has to be everyone. And also we need the political will for that. That's not to say that there are some technologies, particularly where there's an upfront cost, where you may get a vanguard. People that get them first and and capture some of the benefits of those first, but that then paves the way for the rest of us. And the, the kind of classic example of that is mobile telephony, where the 1000 pound or $1,000 mobile phone started. And then that's paved the way for the $50 phone that, you know, that exists in the global south, as well as everywhere in in kind of rich global north countries. So there are some technologies for whom you need maybe the kind of richer middle classes to take those up first to help enable the scale and the, 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 the market to work. But there are in other cases where you absolutely need to make sure it affects everyone equitably, or as equitably as possible. Otherwise, you just can't be successful. And Ruth, do you think there are certain governments that are doing better at this than others? And and can you cite any concrete examples? There is a beautiful example uh, from New Zealand. It's older already. It's it's a a program called Warm Up New Zealand. And it was a program where they aimed at massive retrofitting to increase the energy efficiency in a lot of homes across uh, New Zealand. And what they did is actually they started working together with uh, insurance companies, with the healthcare sector, because very soon they found that uh, several of those homes were so bad in terms of uh, the energy performance that they were really cold, for example, or really hot. And there was a very clear link, for example, between, of course, health. So a lot of the kids in those very cold homes, they suffered a lot of asthma and other chronic lung diseases. And and there was also a very clear link between temperature uh, max and, and violence. And when they started doing the retrofitting, they found the sick days of people, of children were diminishing, but also the, the violence was diminishing. And they started calculating what actually retrofitting, so every dollar, a New Zealand dollar put into the, the retrofitting, how much societal dollars it generated in terms of productivity, sick leave, etc., etc., and that was actually the way of keeping uh, the, the program running and increasing also its skill. I think that's a beautiful example of how a government um, cuts down the silos between, for example, the energy department, the health departments, etc., and the ministries, and starts working together to deliver well-being to people with energy as a mean. I don't know of a lot of other governments doing this uh, in Europe, but they should. And Rob, do you think there are lessons there for the UK government in terms of breaking down silos to move forward with the transition? Yeah, absolutely. What was interesting, I, I, I attended the party conferences in the last couple of weeks, and the, the conversations are around health, around warmer homes, around the jobs and economic and skills benefits. And we are actually entering a period where we probably face the biggest challenge that we've got as a society, but also the biggest opportunity that we've probably ever had, because we have to do this. But if we do, the dividends from doing so is brilliant jobs, 
healthier, warmer homes, a massive reduction in the burden on our health systems, and all of the and it is all interrelated. And I suppose one of the big challenges that we have with the Treasury in the UK is that they do tend to think of everything in terms of cost. And they don't necessarily capture all of the benefits of a change. And as Ruth said, if you were to look at all of the benefits of properly having warm and healthy and safe homes, you would blow the, the cost benefit analysis out of the water. And it'd be incredible because you capture so many more financial savings and benefits than you than, than the, the expenditure would be. But we, we don't think like that. We don't do our appraisals like that. No, it does require also new organizational models and new business models and collaborative business models where, for example, health insurance companies would do the retrofitting because it does decrease the, the incidences in the home. But it's a new way of thinking that's not mainstream yet. That's absolutely right, because almost everything we're doing now is converging. You know, we used to have a power sector and a gas sector, and we used to have an automotive industry. Now they're all part of the same industry because electric cars are so connected to our grid. And a financial services sector, well, actually, as we've said, our financial services sector are going to become part of the same ecosystem as power and all of our household policy and everything else. And I suppose one of the powers that we've got, and I suppose one of the benefits of having quite an advanced financial services sector, particularly in the UK, but also across Europe, is that if we we can do that, we can get very good at that quite quickly and have new business models for delivering this stuff. In energy, we sell energy by the unit. Almost every other thing we buy, we're buying under a subscription model at the moment. So can we start to see completely different service models and ways of doing it in a way that if you had a subscription where you pay for your energy, could you layer in the upfront costs of a heat pump or any other kind of green technology into that subscription? pay for that over a longer period of time, get over the hurdle of upfront costs, but also provide, you know, a great business model and, and revenue. So there are, I think we're about to witness a real disruption in how we do lots of these things over the next few years. And the ways which we buy products and services, I think will look very different in 10 years time as they do today. That was really interesting. Obviously, one of the, the, the themes of all of this is about housing stock. Now, of course, a large number of people in this country don't own their own housing, they rent it. Now, I know one of the issues for the Smart GB campaign is, is reaching out into rented homes. Now, Rob, is that, so I, I you know, I'm basically just intrigued. What are the, the barriers? Is it primarily than, you know, if you're renting, you don't gain any of the benefits from yourself, but you gain all of the sort of costs and logistical hassle? Or is it if you are the landlord, you're the person who actually needs to make change, but from your perspective, the house is just an asset and the energy cost is really the tenant's problem? Yeah, so I suppose there's two kinds of barrier. There's firstly that the tenant might not be there very long, doesn't own the property, may share the house as well. So there's shared responsibility for making these decisions. So it's much harder for them to do it. But then you've also got the landlord as well, which whether the landlord is willing or not creates an additional step. It creates friction in the transaction. And the reason that Amazon has one click ordering is because as soon as you add another step into a transaction, you get drop off. Well, with smart meter rollout, but indeed anything else, if the tenant has to ask the landlord's permission or feels they have to, even if they don't, you will get a massive drop off in uptake. So if I had a big plea for the government alongside all the other people that are making pleas of the government on this area, you absolutely have to sort out renters policy because for everything we need to do, whether that's electric cars, smart meters, heat pumps, retrofit, all of it is going to require the private rented sector to do it. And at the moment, our policy framework doesn't facilitate. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ruth, looking sort of across the world, is there anyone, whether it's a government or an organisation or something, that you think has cracked the, the problem of how to, to reach out effectively and include the private rented sector in the transition? I don't think so. No, it's especially in the when you talk about the private rental sector, that's really a difficult situation. But again, I think the key is in the new business models where the multiple benefits are much more clear and monetized to some extent. Because even when you talk about... One of the first things that Rob said was tenants usually don't stay long. That's a major problem for landlords because the administration costs are high because of that, the churn of uh, people uh, leaving. If you build a more comfortable home that provides well-being in, in a multifaceted approach, people stay longer. So it's very much about looking differently at what the benefits are of such a home and how those benefits translate back to different stakeholders and work together to actually deliver, in this case, the the retrofitting, for example. There's a lot of change that needs to happen in a very short amount of time. We're aiming to reduce emissions significantly by 2030 and then to net zero by 2050. And this is all a big package of things. So what's the starting? Where do we start now? Where do governments need to go forward to actually get us on the, the road that you're talking about, uh, Ruth? Where What's the first step in this journey? Well, that's a very difficult question. I think the first step is um, letting go, first of all, of this notion of persuading or convincing people and start thinking in terms of engaging them because that turns the, the table in that sense. And that implies, for example, that you allow people to start working as energy communities. There's still so much in terms of regulatory barriers that keep people from acting as a community in terms of energy. So if you want people to start engaging with energy, allow and create the circumstances for them to actually be able to do so. But also from a justice perspective, that implies that you really take a good look at whether or not people are enabled to participate, uh, whether or not they have the capabilities to participate and the social resilience to actually be able to participate. Again, to avoid only the able and the willing, uh, the vanguard, so to say, to start doing this, because we need all of them to start participating. So enabling people to join. Rob, what for you is the first step to get us on the road to change here? I, I'm going to go with three first steps because I'm greedy, if that's okay. So I'm I think not sure that's is... allowed. <laughs> you fall over <laughs> if you have three first steps. So <laughs> I, so we've got a few things that we need to crack. I think on, on communications, and I think it's absolutely right, it needs to be engagement rather than communications. There's so much that we're asking people to do 
that we are going to need to explain it to them and so that they understand what 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 has to happen so i would i would like to see multi-year communications campaign on some of these issues and it doesn't have to be just like smart energy gb or the digital uk one that came before us that, that we stand on the shoulders of but i think we need to do more communications around some of this stuff we absolutely need to to remove the cost barriers that's the biggest thing and it needs to be long-term funding because that's where you get people investing in skills and the jobs so we need a kind of long-term framework that people can trust and rely on and sets the direction and the last one is about giving people confidence that it'll be okay so customer redress is a really big area we need to tackle things will go wrong sometimes and a heat pump might go wrong five six years into the future so people need confidence that if something does go wrong it will be dealt with and it will be dealt with fairly i would like to have a second one as well (laughs) (laughs) we're all going to fall flat on our faces if this carries on Yes, I think also something that that could be changed and that would probably generate more acceleration of the energy transition is instead of having this top-down approach focused on upscaling, it would be really worthwhile exploring how localized localized and context-sensitive approaches could be deployed in engaging with the people we are talking about instead of delivering something that worked somewhere else in completely different context and then being surprised it doesn't work there. So replicating instead of uh, upscaling uh, and replicating in such a manner that there is sufficient room for actually contextualizing the, uh, the approaches. There are so It's the Christmas tree approach that, that you talked about, Stephen. There is so much difference out there that, that needs to be recognized because there is not a one silver bullet that you can roll out all uh, over the world, uh, not even on a national uh, level. Yeah, talking about transition difficulties, obviously part of the, the sort of unwanted backdrop to the run-up to COP is what's happening in the energy market at the moment. Yeah, again, one of the questions politicians are grappling with here is how do you communicate you know, the importance of transition during a time of rising energy prices? So, Ruth, first, how do you think you balance that, that challenge? I don't think it's only up to the government to actually uh, solve an issue like this. And I don't know what the best way forward is. I do know that even people like myself, and I'm one of the happy few in that sense, that owns its own uh, home, is secure in the job, etc. We are now moving to another home and we need to uh, do a very extensive retrofitting, but that will only be able to be delivered within a year uh, or so. So for us, the energy bill is going through the roof, I think, the next year. And even someone that is, I'm quite knowledgeable about the energy transition, about the technologies that we should use, etc. It's a hell going through the choices that I need to make to actually retrofit my own home. So taking a very egocentric perspective to answer your question, I would say one of the first things that could be really improved is actually delivering packages of choice for these type of homes, for example, for homeowners. I don't know uh, what to choose, which uh, service company to work with, what kind of heat pump to install. There are like 10 different ones. How the system integration is going to work, that is really a big issue in a lot of the decision-making processes, which is also behavioral change and the uptake part of behavioral change when it comes to making sustainable choices. So clear the wood for people in that sense would be something I think uh, is really necessary for people to be able to quickly respond to, for example, those rising energy prices. 
I think this period is fascinating because I really don't know how it's going to go because the, the, the kind of macro policy reaction to the gas crisis has been, this is exactly why we need to decarbonize faster. We need to be much less reliant on gas. We need to move to renewables and then use that, that renewable flexibly. However, if you're hard-pressed households, it completely takes up your bandwidth. So you're not going to be able to do this as quickly, I think. And some of the businesses that we're relying on to make this transition, such as energy companies, and invest in some of this and and try new business models, they're so distressed right now that it's. I think it's going to delay things. So I'm, I think there's a double-edged crisis here in that I think it shows why we need to do this faster and will hopefully add some urgency to it. But I think a lot of the logistical efforts that we're going to need to go through are going to be made much harder over this next six months as we try and work out exactly what to do and live with the consequences of the financial cost of all of this. Yeah, I think that's clearly a massive challenge. And one thing that I hear speaking to to different people is obviously the different reactions from different governments. So some governments are obviously being more supportive and helping especially people in low-income households out more. So that's perhaps also, you know, how do you explain what's happening? I think what you said before is important in this idea of narrative and explaining to people exactly what's happening and why it's happening. And also perhaps part of that is that the energy transition won't be a totally smooth process. And that's also something that we all need to understand that a process of transition never goes exactly uh, as planned. And it's a massive transition which has to happen. So that's, I think, what you said before, this idea of narrative of communication is key to, to how we move forward. But really, really interesting points from both of you. I think we need to be really radically honest about that, actually. The fact that it's going to be difficult, the fact that things will go wrong, and whether that's on an individual level, the, the, the technology you buy might not work straight away and it might need sorting, or on a kind of macro level like the gas crisis. I think part of the way we need to do communications well is to be really honest about where it's imperfect and not surprise people and set the wrong expectations because that's when people get really disappointed and lose faith in us. I think this is a really important point uh, that, that you both make, that transitions are by definition unknown in terms of their end. We don't know what, what pathways will work, where we will end up, what that will imply. So it's about making choices in uncertain conditions. And then again, what really is important to to make sure uh, of, and I think the the, uh, customer or consumer redress that you already mentioned, Rob, is really important there. But it's also very much about making sure that the impacts of the, in hindsight, wrong choices, technologically or otherwise, should not, again, uh, fall on one particular group only. So there should be mechanisms in place as well to make sure that there is distributional justice. Well, that was a really interesting discussion. Thank you to our guest, Ruth Mori. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And Rob Cheeseright. Thank you. You can find more information about the Smart Energy GB campaign and join the energy revolution by searching Get a Smart Meter. You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Philippa Nuttall, Environment and Sustainability Editor at the New Statesman. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Our producer is Adrian Bradley. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.